0: I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 14 through to 29. Let me read for us this text. And when they, that is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples... How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word now, give us ears to hear. Minds to understand, hearts to receive your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they've just descended the holy mountain of God. And you can imagine the the ecstasy, the, the blissfulness that the three disciples were feeling They had just seen Jesus transfigured before them. The glory of Jesus shone in his face. They were taken up into the very glory of God, and they even heard the voice of God, This is my son. Listen to him. They were full of joy. They had just seen the glorified Son of God. But as they reached the bottom of the mountain and made their way to this crowd, they probably had a rude awakening. They were able to behold the glory of God, but now they approach the crowd with Jesus and they are reminded that they are living in a faithless world under the domain of Satan. And that's the first thing that I want us to see this morning in this passage In verses 14 to 19, we see a faithless people. A faithless people. Look at verse 14 and 15. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So there's this great commotion happening when Jesus returns with his three disciples. There's a crowd that has has gathered around the other disciples, the ones who were not with Jesus on the holy mountain. And the scribes are arguing with these disciples. But as they're arguing, the the crowd sees Jesus in the distance, and they're they're amazed. They're amazed. They run to him and greet him. Some commentators think that there's a possibility that there was a, a kind of glow still reminiscing on Jesus from his transfiguration, though we don't know. But they were amazed to see him. But Jesus noticed that the crowd and the scribes had surrounded his disciples, and they were arguing with them. And so he asked them plainly, what are you arguing about? And out of all the people to speak up, it's the father of the son who has a demon. And he indirectly answers Jesus' question in verse 17 to 18. Teacher... I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it ceases him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So this father was intending to bring his son to Jesus, but Jesus, of course, wasn't around. He was on the holy mountain. And so instead, he asked Jesus' disciples, hoping that they might be able to deliver his son from this demon. And as we see at the end of verse 18, we're told that they were not able, they lacked the ability to do so. And so the arguing that's happening revolves around the disciples attempting to deliver this father's son. And most likely, When the scribes saw the disciples fail, they went at them. They were probably mocking the disciples, probably arguing over their methods. You're one of Jesus' disciples, but you're unable to deliver this boy? And everything that Jesus has heard and observed is a demonstration of how faithless these people were, the disciples included. Why were the disciples unable to cast the demon out of this boy? Well, I think the reason is hinted at in verse 19. When Jesus, after he hears everything, he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? O faithless generation, in light of the disciples' inability and the scribes arguing, and and all that's happening, the commotion, Jesus says, you are a faithless generation, an unbelieving people. And you see in this cry from Jesus just how disturbed he is at the unbelief he observes. How long? How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This is a man deeply grieved, at what he sees. There's a level of weariness close to the almost close to almost the place of heartbreak. He's experiencing what, what I would call as holy frustration. Holy frustration. See, when Jesus says this, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear you? It should actually remind us of how God in the old testament often spoke to rebellious and unbelieving Israel. This is the image that that we have here. It's, it's Yahweh crying out to his unbelieving people, how long will you continue in your unbelief and your rebellious ways? How long will you disregard me? And so we see a faithless people and And this unbelief that we see here prevented the disciples from being able to deliver the boy from the demonic. So the second thing is we see a desperate, doubting father. Now, despite Jesus' holy frustration, right, he expressed his frustration, his compassion still leads him to intervene in this boy's life. And this is why after he expresses his sorrow, he tells them to bring the boy to him. And in verse 20, they bring the boy, the boy to Jesus. And what happens in verse 20? Well, the demon loses its mind, right? Look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Why does this happen with the demon when he sees Jesus? Well, I think it's partly his attempt to fight, right? He, he's ready to, to try to go to war with Jesus, which we know never goes well is for the demonic. But I also think it's due to terror. The demon knows far better than anyone else who Jesus is. It knows that before him is a superior power and authority. It knows that before, before him stands its creator, And in a last-ditch effort, it will do all that it can to harm and destroy this boy. Calvin, in referencing the devil's tactics, says this, that the devil should rage with more than ordinary cruelty against the man when he is brought to Christ, ought not to excite surprise. For in proportion as the grace of Christ is seen to be nearer at hand and acts more powerfully, The fury of Satan is the more highly excited. The presence of Christ awakens him like the sound of a trumpet. See, there's no one more repulsed by the presence of Jesus than the demonic. And the demonic will do all that it can to harm what Jesus loves, human beings. And so this boy is is rolling about the ground, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus, out of genuine concern, genuine compassion and care, he asks the father how long this has been happening to him. And the father responds shockingly at the verse 21 by saying, from childhood, from childhood. How did this son have a demon from his childhood. See, we don't know how old the son is in this moment, but it seems that his son was demonized from a very young age. How could a child of Israel have a demon? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But I think Israel's history might give us a clue. See, when Jesus shows up in Israel... There's actually a ton of demonic activity. There's a lot of people who are demonized, right? Specifically, though not exclusively, the Israelites. Right? Jesus' ministry, we see several times where Jesus encounters the demonic in very specific stories and He, he delivers those individuals. But there's also times in the Gospels where, where it's simply given a summary. Where Jesus enters this village and we're told that he cast out many demons in this village. And what's interesting is that the Israelites don't seem all that surprised by the demonic activity. What are they surprised by? They're surprised by Jesus' authority over the demonic. But how is it that the covenant people of God are dealing with so much demonic interference how is it a child in israel has a demon well israel's history like i said i think sheds light on this and there's lots of places in the old testament that we could go to but let me just reference psalm 106 36 to 39 where the psalmist describes some of the wickedness that the generations of israel had participated in this is what we read They served, that is Israel served their idols, that is the idols of the nations, which became a snare to them. And then hear this. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. So Generations of generations of Israelites are sacrificing their own children to these idols of the pagan nations, which the psalmist says they're demons. They were participating in demonic worship by giving up their own children to these pagan gods. Generations. And that's partly why the Babylonian captivity happened. That's partly why God brought judgment upon Israel. And I think you have generations of demonic enslavement passed down from generation to generation. So that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the idea of demonic possession is not a big surprise. What is surprising is he has the authority to deal with it. And I think part of Jesus' ministry is to destroy the power and enslavement that Satan had over the people of Israel because of their sin. And this child was probably a victim of generational sin due to demonic possession. Now, I know that might sound controversial. I don't think it is. So he tells Jesus that his son has been experiencing this from childhood. And then he describes in verse 22 further what what the demon has tried to do to his son at different times. And he says that he he often tries to cast him into the fire and water to destroy him. This is a a dire situation. And you can see the, the desperation in the father with his cry in verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us, And help us. See, he's a desperate father. He's longing for his son to be healed and delivered. From his son's childhood, he has experienced demonic harm. Parents, imagine at any moment your child losing control of their faculties and attempting to run into a fire to burn to death or the water to drown to death. Imagine what that would be like as a parent dealing with that for years. This is what the father was experiencing. He was desperate. But we also see that he's doubting. He's doubting. He's just seen the disciples' inability to deliver his son. And though he asked Jesus for help, there's a level of doubt he has towards Jesus' ability probably stemming from the disciples own failure. And you see this clearly when he says, "If you can, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us." He's doubting. He he comes to Jesus for help, but there's a level of doubt in regards to Jesus's capability, "If you can," And this is why Jesus responds by by turning it back onto the Father. Not to make him feel guilty, but to help him understand that this isn't about my ability. This is about your lack of faith. As he says in verse 23, And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now this phrase, by Jesus, all things are possible for the one who believes, has often been abused and misused by many professing Christians. Many have used this verse as a a way in which you can get anything you want. Just believe, right? If you truly believe, you you will get from Jesus Christ exactly what you want, which means if if you don't get what you want, it's because of unbelief. Even going so far as believing that one can control Jesus. Get him to do what you want based upon the amount of faith you have. But that's not what's going on here. This father doubts the ability of Jesus. And Jesus desires for this father to truly trust him. He wants this father to believe that he is truly able to deliver his son. All things are possible for the one who believes. For the the one who believes, I am able. All things are possible, not certain, not guaranteed, but they are possible. But you must believe I am able to do so. You see, to the one who believes, all things are possible because you're believing in the one who can do the impossible, like walk on water or rise from the dead. See, Jesus here is teaching us what the true nature of faith is. True faith is believing that Jesus is able. The Father was doubting his ability And Jesus is inviting this man to truly believe, to truly believe that Jesus can do the impossible. You see, there's a difference between believing Jesus is able and Jesus will do it. So let me illustrate this. Let's say you had, a God forbid, a family member who got in a car accident and was paralyzed. And you desire to see them healed. Now, many people would say that true faith is believing without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus will heal that family member. I don't think that's true faith. I think that's superstition. Because Jesus doesn't promise that he will. I think true faith is believing that Jesus is able to heal your family member But it doesn't mean that he will. You see, the only time true faith is believing he will is when Jesus has said he will. That's why when Jesus says, do not worry about what you will eat or drink or what you will wear, but seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, therefore, and all these other things will be added to you. That's a promise from Jesus that we can take to the bank. And I can promise that Jesus will meet my every need. Now, it might not be what I think, but he has promised that he will clothe me, feed me, and care for me. And therefore, faith in that situation is actually believing that Jesus will meet my every need. But faith is primarily believing that he is able. And trusting him with the results, even when the results do not unfold the way we had hoped. That's true faith, because faith now is in a person, not in a result. This father is doubting, and he's not doubting Jesus' willingness, he's doubting his ability. And this is why Jesus challenges him, all things are possible for the one who believes. The deliverance of your son is dependent on your believing that I am able to do so. Now, how does the father respond to Jesus' exhortation? We'll look at verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I think these are some of the most beautiful words spoken by an individual in the scriptures. I believe, help my unbelief. This was an act of faith but also an act of humility. I I do believe, Jesus, but there is is doubt in me, so help me. I believe, but, but my faith isn't as strong as it should be. Jesus, give me a deeper faith. You see, this father didn't have a perfect faith, but in this cry, he displayed a genuine faith. See, friends, Jesus isn't looking for a perfect faith before he acts on our behalf. Jesus compassionately works with a genuine, yet even weak faith. Christ doesn't need a a great faith nor a perfect faith in order for him to act. A faith the size of a mustard seed is more than enough. How comforting is this? For us who identify so much with this burdened father how often in the midst of life do we experience both faith and doubt how often are we this father lord i believe but help my unbelief now i want you to notice that the solution to the father's unbelief isn't trying to conjure up more faith from within He's not trying to, to dig down deep to find more faith or, or I believe, I believe, I believe, help me, I believe, I believe. He's not doing that. Where does he turn to deal with his unbelief? Does he turn to himself? Does he try to will more belief? No. He turns to the one who is able to deepen and strengthen his faith. He looks To Jesus. In other words, the deepening of our faith depends on us looking to Jesus and asking Him to help. He looks outside of Himself to the one who has the power to not only deliver His Son, but also the power to strengthen His own faith. And maybe this morning you are an individual struggling to believe. Struggling to truly trust Jesus And I say to you that the solution to that struggle is not your own determination, but your willingness to humble yourself before him and cry for help. Jesus, help my unbelief. So we see an unbelieving people. We see a desperate, doubting father. And in verses 25 to 27, we see a violent deliverance. A violent deliverance. Look at verse 25 to 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. After the father cries for help, Jesus notices that a crowd came running, probably to see the spectacle. We don't know who this crowd was or where they were coming from. In light of what Jesus observes, he ends the dialogue, and now he compassionately but powerfully acts on behalf of the father's weak faith. He rebukes and he commands the mute and deaf spirit to come out of the son and never enter him again. And we see that the, the demon cries out and he, he convulses him so terribly that we're told the boy was like a corpse. So much so that, that even some who were there thought him to be dead. And of course, Jesus then takes him by the hand and helps him rise. What we see here is that this deliverance had an element of violence to it. It was hard There was intense conflict. The boy was convulsed. He cried out through his vocal cords. And I think Mark wants his readers to understand that there is a level of violence when the kingdom of Jesus overthrows the domain of darkness. Deliverance from sin and the power of Satan can be described as a kind of death and resurrection experience I also think that the sun appearing as though dead but arising at the hand of Jesus I think it is, is a small foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and resurrection by which he will disarm and defeat Satan once and for all and bring a multitude of people from death to life. So we see an unbelieving people, we see a desperate, doubting father, we see a violent deliverance, and finally, in verse 28 to 29, we see the remedy for unbelief, which we sort of touched on earlier. The event is over. Jesus has cast the demon out of the boy, the boy and the father have gone home, and now Jesus and his disciples have entered the house. We don't know whose house this was. But the disciples come to Jesus and they, they privately ask him, why could we not cast it out? And this is a legitimate question on the part of the disciples. Remember, in Mark 6, 7-13, we're told that Jesus gave his 12 disciples authority over demons. And they actually did go out and cast out many demons. So why now, all of a sudden, were they unable to do so? And Jesus' answer is fascinating. Look at verse 29. And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. He tells them that this kind of demon cannot be driven out except by prayer. Now as a side note, I think it's important for us to see this, that Jesus is alluding to the fact that there are different kinds of demons. There are more powerful demons, and there are less powerful demons. And the same is true of angels. There are archangels, and there are other kinds of angels. And it would appear from this text that the demon that the disciples were facing was more powerful than just your ordinary demon, whatever an ordinary demon is. Which means that it required a greater dependence on God. And I think it's possible that over time, the disciples began to think that because they had been given authority by Jesus, and because they had seen signs and wonders done through them, that over time they began to think that they themselves were able to deliver the demonic. It's possible they lost sight of their need for God's power in every situation despite the fact that they had been given authority by Jesus. Maybe they were trusting in themselves a little too much. Which is so often the case when we experience some form of success as Christians. We start out with such dependence upon God, and then over time as we see success over time, slowly but surely, we begin to lose that dependence upon God. It happens to many, many Christians, especially pastors. They're they're deeply dependent upon God for their ministry, and then they begin to see success, and they begin to see lives change, and over time, they subconsciously start to believe that they've accomplished this. And they lose sight of their need for God, of God's power. They lose sight of what it means to get on their knees before God and pray for help. See, I think Jesus in this event wanted to remind the disciples that though they had been given authority from him to cast out the demonic, they still needed to be utterly dependent upon God for every deliverance. And this is why prayer is essential, because it is the clearest act of truly being dependent upon God. As Ladd states, Jesus explained to the disciples that such malign evil spirits can be expelled only by a full reliance upon the unlimited power of God expressed through prayer. But isn't it interesting that the reason, according to verse 19, for why the disciples couldn't cast out the demon was due to unbelief, right? They're, they're unable, and Jesus in verse 19 says, O faithless generation. So the disciples in verse 19 were unable to cast out the demonic because of unbelief. But here, Jesus says, the reason was due to a lack of prayer. Well, which one is it? Well, I think Jesus is making a connection between faith and prayer. The one who has faith is the one who prays. And the one who prays is the one who has faith. The one who believes is the one who prays, and the one who prays is the one who believes. You see, prayer is essential to the strengthening of one's faith. I can pretty confidently say that those who lack faith probably don't have a strong prayer life. Prayer is the remedy for unbelief. And faith, or belief, is what sustains one's prayer. But Jesus is also telling us here that prayer is one of the weapons we use against the strongholds of the devil. We take ground while on our knees. See, if someone were were given access to your prayer life, would they see a person of faith or a person of unbelief? You know, I don't know if there's ever been a time like today where there has been such a grand assault on prayer. Satan's tool belt, it keeps growing. (laughs) and Satan's tool belt has grown when it comes to keeping us from prayer. There are more things and distractions to keep us from prayer than any other time in human history. And I think we deeply suffer because of it. I don't think the church in North America suffers for lack of good preaching. I think there's multitudes of good preachers across North America. I think the church suffers in North America primarily due to lack of prayer. I think we suffer individually because of it, but the church as a whole suffers because of it. We don't see the power of God because we're not willing to get on our knees and cry for the power of God. We allow our technology to rule us. It's far easier to scroll through our phones than it is to get on our knees and to seek God's face and ask Him to deepen our faith and to strengthen His church. You know, I think of characters in the Old Testament who in the midst of very difficult circumstances and didn't compromise, it was partly due to prayer. I think of Daniel, who didn't compromise because he was a man devoted to prayer. Any kind of victory over sin and Satan requires a people who are devoted to prayer. So we've seen in this passage a a doubting, faithless people, a desperate, doubting father, a violent deliverance, and we've seen the remedy for unbelief, which is to get on our knees before God and cry out, help my unbelief. And I pray that we as a church at Royal York would be not just a people who loves God's word and loves to hear God's word, but that we would love, we would be a people who delight to be before God and seek his face and to be a people committed to prayer. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to be a people, Lord, who truly who truly are utterly dependent upon you for all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.